Welcome to Spotlight Sessions, a series of CPD-eligible podcasts shining light on important topics to consider now and for the future. This week we're joined by Glenn Baker, Charles Stanley's Business Development Director, and Tom DeRose of the Freud Museum to discuss the psychological and emotional impact of coronavirus, Anxiety in Times of Crisis, Episode 1 of a two-part special. Hello, I'm Glenn Baker, part of the Charles Stanley team, and I'm responsible for building the circle of advice around clients when our other professional expertise and services are needed, thereby increasing the overall level of service that we provide in collaboration with other professionals. In discussing the psychological and emotional impact of the coronavirus, I'm joined by Tom DeRose from the Freud Museum. The Freud Museum in London is the final home of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis. And today, the museum plays a leading role in understanding the psychology of contemporary life, as well as understanding and advising on mental health and well-being. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Glenn. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to come and discuss some of the psychological effects of coronavirus which is a subject that I think that we can all relate to at the moment. Well, indeed. And in looking at the psychological impact of the coronavirus, in this episode, we are going to explore the staging and impact of anxiety. And while we are talking here about the impact of the coronavirus in particular, I wonder to what extent this is a heightened emotional time that is drawing upon an underlying anxiety that already lives among us before this crisis took hold. Tom, perhaps we could start then with anxiety as it lives and breathes today. Well, um, anxiety today, it, it seems to me that the current situation leaves us exposed to feelings of anxiety which um, kind of emanate from at least three distinct sources. Firstly, we have anxieties which stem from the virus itself, i.e. the risk of becoming infected. Secondly, are those anxieties which revolve around what the future might hold, Or kind of how do we return to the new normal? You know, this phrase, the new normal, that's been used so often recently. So these anxieties might involve concerns over things like job losses or exams and financial implications, perhaps. And thirdly, we're experiencing a growing sense of anxiety, I think which has been induced by the seemingly endless period of lockdown to which we are being subjected. Indeed, on this last point, the director of the Wellcome Trust and government advisor Sir Jeremy Fallon recently highlighted the fact that an extended period of lockdown could have severe repercussions on our collective mental health. So despite these very specific phenomena, Coronavirus is really just the most recent and perhaps the most immediately impactful example of a source of anxiety which has happened, which has appeared, sorry, on the scene that was set for it by the climate emergency. 
And it was only a few months ago, Glenn, that you and I were sat in the audience of the Charles Stanley Client Conference, listening to the fascinating presentation that was given by Dr. Gabrielle Walker about the financial implications of the climate emergency, to which coronavirus is, of course, intimately bound. Now, it might be tempting to think of our own age as being unique in producing an anxiety which may be described as existential. And by that, I mean threatening our very existence. But I think that in some ways, this would be a kind of naive attitude, really. Indeed, if we look back to the century that preceded ours, to the 20th century, and if we look at how anxiety was represented and theorised about then, we might have some clues as to how to get a handle on our current concerns. So in 1947, W.H. Auden chose the title The Age of Anxiety for his vast poem that described the alienation, isolation and meaninglessness that was experienced in the face of an increasingly mechanised existence. Now, we might well impute similar concerns to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, perhaps, that was published in 1922. And, of course, from, from my point of view, there's, a, there's the work of the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, who was grappling with the notion of anxiety throughout his clinical career, and whose final word on the subject, Inhibitions, Symptoms and Anxiety, was published in 1926. Now, incidentally, this paper was published just six years after the end of the Spanish flu pandemic, which has been referred to a great deal in the, in the press recently. So it would be perhaps quite interesting to look at this text in order to help us think through some of our current anxieties. Well, in, indeed, Tom, and on that, perhaps we could have a closer look at anxiety itself. Um, now, we've seen clapping for the NHS at designated times with people coming out of their homes to show their appreciation for the fantastic work done by the NHS and by other carers. And this has provided wonderful, unifying moments across the UK, yet Underneath it, driving the thanks and the praise and the gratitude is perhaps an anxiety across the nation, across nations, in fact. So perhaps it's worth thinking about what is anxiety? It's rife, it's global. How does it operate? Right, yeah. What is anxiety? I mean, that, that's the question that we're, kind, we're trying to kind of work with today, isn't it, I think? Um, so perhaps it might be useful if we started with one or two definitions, um, and I've, I've got a couple in front of me here. Um, so firstly, the NHS Direct website describes anxiety as a feeling of unease, such as worry or fear, that can be mild or severe. So that's one definition. Um, the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual that's used by psychiatry, describes generalised anxiety disorder as excessive anxiety and worry or apprehensive expectation that occurs more days than not for at least six months. So we have a feeling of unease 
and also a sense of worry. Now, Freudian psychoanalysis would concur with these definitions, but it also describes anxiety as having a sense of kind of expectation attached to it. So it's kind of involved with something that might occur in the future, perhaps. And also, it describes anxiety as not having a specific object, of, of having a sense almost of indefiniteness about it. I think we, we can give an example of how um, we use everyday language, actually, to this effect. So we kind of describe how we're afraid of something, and it might be kind of spiders or snakes, perhaps, so a couple of common fears that people might have. But when we talk about anxiety, we say that we're anxious about something. It might be exams or job prospects or perhaps even economic impacts. So there's definitely a semantic connection here. Um, anxiety, in a way, seems to deal, at least, in imprecision. So we can say then that anxiety can be characterised by a sense of worry and concern, which is about something that can't quite be defined, connected to a sense of expectation. But how does it work psychologically? What are the mechanisms which operate in the production of anxiety? And perhaps more importantly, what's the purpose of anxiety? So we've looked at the, at the kind of what is it, but, but, but maybe the why needs to be answered. Why, why anxiety? So in order to help us understand Freud's arguments about this from his, his paper, Inhibition Symptoms and Anxieties, I'd like to draw an analogy between his theory of anxiety and how a virus is treated in the form of a vaccination, which I'm sure you'll agree is a very appropriate an analogy for our current times. So in this text, Freud analyzes two distinct types of anxiety. So firstly, he refers to primary or automatic anxiety. Now this, throws one, throws someone into a state of mental helplessness, rather like the effect that a virus can have upon an organism, which can overcome it and kind of leave it helpless and almost, in some cases, struggling for its very existence. So that's the first form of anxiety that Freud mentions. And the second form that anxiety takes is what he calls signal anxiety. Now, signal anxiety works by producing a feeling of helplessness that's not dissimilar to that experienced by the mind as a result of primal anxiety, but this time in a diluted form. So this signal anxiety is then a kind of catalyst for the physical or psychical responses that would kick in in order to avert the potential danger that's looming on the horizon. It's, it's a warning sign, if you will. So I think in a similar way, um, a kind of vaccine works like that. In that our organism is exposed, you know, in a vaccination to certain molecules from the virus known as antigens. And these antigens trigger an immune response 
which thus helps avert the danger of infection. So then we might then see anxiety as a process, actually, which, like the treatment of a virus through vaccination, can help us to kind of avoid and avert a danger or trauma by exposing us to its potential psychological effects. So in a way, it's, um, it's I don't know, both the poison and the remedy, if you will. I'm reminded here, Tom, of, of the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, who wrote at extreme lengths about many topics in, in the 19th century. But in one of his books, The Concept of Anxiety, Kierkegaard says that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And in our current context, the dizziness of the virus has reduced the freedom of our bodies with government responses of lockdowns, for instance. But the virus has not reduced the freedom of our minds. And that is obviously life affirming in itself, but also problematic, perhaps. Is that something that you would recognise? Yes, yes, the, the, the dizziness of freedom. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful expression, isn't it? I think. Um, and, and certainly, I think something that in the way you describe it, um, something I would kind of recognise. Um, I think perhaps as well as Kierkegaard, we, we could think of, of the work of uh, Eric Fromm, you know, related to the current times. Um, and in his book, The Fear of Freedom, um, and albeit he talks about this in a, in a different context, um, he distinguishes between two versions of freedom. One is the freedom from something, and the other one is the freedom to do something. So the freedom from and the freedom to. And uh, maybe we're in a position at the moment, actually, where we're experiencing freedom from our usual demands and our normal routines, uh, but in, a, in actually in a kind of passive way, if, almost. Um, so we're experiencing this passively, but we're not currently free to do anything creative or active with this kind of newfound freedom. Now, there are many questions here, Tom, that, em that emerge out of all of this, really. Um, I mean, the, the, the scope of this subject is obviously vast. Social cohesion, for instance, and human nature. There's lots that could be said around governments, around the role of the individual and, and social ethics as well, perhaps. These are big, big topics, but perhaps we could focus on two at this point. Questions of trust and questioning reality. I mean, it was Aristotle who says that truth resides in the world around us. But living in a pandemic, how do we recognise what is true and how can we trust it? Especially in a heightened sense of, of anxiety, as you have mapped out and described for us. Well, yeah, very, very difficult. I mean, how do we recognise what's true? How do we kind of... Um... How do we understand our reality these days? Um, I, I think if, if I may, I'll, I'll start with the question of reality and draw a, through a few ideas around that. Um, I think obviously, I think our sense of reality has really come under threat recently and has brought about 
that kind of collective feeling of helplessness that I mentioned earlier. Now, one way in which we order our reality is through our sense of time. And our sense of time, I think, has become destabilised and somehow skewed during the current pandemic. One of the ways out of an anxious situation is for us to imagine a point in the future when it will all be over. And the ability to kind of quantify and measure our temporality in this way, to kind of put a, a limit on that time period, is essential, I think, to our psychological well-being. To be able to say that in one month's time, perhaps, I'll be going to work or seeing my relative. I mean, this gives us the opportunity to mentally project ourselves into that future point where we can be certain of the coordinates. However, we now experience a temporality or a sense of time which feels almost as if it's eternally present. It's almost a condition of stasis, whereby we have no idea when things will change or indeed what that change will look like. Coexistent with this temporal freeze, if you will, is a feeling that I might describe as a, as a kind of hyper-reality related to time. So at the moment, news is reaching us so quickly and that information that we're getting seems to be changing almost by the minute. So the combination of these two kind of seemingly opposite sensations leaves us in a state which can be both apathetic on the one hand and agitated on the other. And these are certainly two symptoms which we would normally say would fall under the umbrella of anxiety. So as well as our sense of time being affected during the current pandemic, we're also dealing with uncertainties that have, I think, been conditioning our existence for some time now. I mean, who do you believe in an era that's characterised by post-truth and fake news? Many people, of course, have found security and assurance in the notion of the impartiality and the truth value of science. And yet recently, we've seen science being used to justify many different responses to this virus, all the way from herd immunity on the one hand to lockdown measures on the other. So in the face of such confusion and uncertainty, it's no wonder that helplessness seems to be all pervasive. And then there's that phrase that I keep hearing this, this phrase, the new normal, which gained, has gained a great deal of traction recently, that phrase. Um, so in a recent YouGov poll, it was suggested that only 9% of people wanted things to go back to normal in Britain once the lockdown is lifted. I mean, 9% of people want to go back to normal. I mean, to my mind, that seems like a hugely significant percentage. And I think it will be interesting to see 
what this new normal, in inverted commas, might look like over the coming months. In, indeed, Tom, I quite agree with that. Um, and, and on the point about trust, um, and perhaps trust in, in the reality of, of another human being, let's say, I suppose one way of looking at this, Tom, is, is that to be someone to confide in is still a highly valuable social skill. I can't see that changing, only becoming more in demand. What do you think, given that sense of helplessness that you've just talked us through, of, of time being suspended, as, as you mentioned? Oh, absolutely, Glenn. I mean, I, I, I think that the need really to have figures of trust in our lives, um, it seems to me to be more urgent than ever, actually. So perhaps one of the things that this whole situation has thrown into relief is the crucial role that people like psychotherapists or trusted advisors perhaps have in our lives. Professionals who can help to guide us through challenging landscapes and give us the support we need in order to make difficult decisions. I mean, this, of course, also translates into the social as well as the professional sphere. One is reminded again and again, Tom, of, of the sanctity of human life, that, that life has value, that it is precious. And of course, there is a whole bioethical discipline around that. I'm reminded here because there must surely be many responses to the anxieties that we feel. I mean, there must be many and many. And the responses themselves will be different. Many will be life-affirming, perhaps. But equally, perhaps, we could start with something that is less progressive. I mean, there must be less progressive responses to anxiety. Mm -hmm. Oh, indeed. I mean, there are. Um, and, and I think, yeah, so let's start with, with something that, that, you know, a response that you might describe as, as less progressive. Um, so, as you hinted, um, our responses to anxiety can be many and varied. I mean, some of these might be what Freud would describe as, a, as pathological. And others we could perhaps describe as, as something that, that's more normal, in inverted commas. So if anxiety is something that, from a certain viewpoint at least, has to be defended against, one defensive action is that of, of regression. Now, I'll, I'll just kind of describe what that means. In regression, we kind of we might kind of unconsciously revert to an infantile state of, de of dependence. And I'll, I'll, I'll just elaborate on this, um, if I may, um, by suggesting that, you know, although we might marvel at the fact that at least until fairly recently, um, Donald Trump's popularity ratings have been steadily increasing, despite the fact that his daily press briefings on the coronavirus have appeared to you know, be contradictory from day to day. And that the fact that he also seems to have been using uh, the platform that he has uh, you know, when talking about coronavirus to, just to push through his political agenda. So despite all of that, you know, until recently, like I said, his, his popularity ratings have been increasing. Um, now, obviously, we can interpret this in a number of ways. 
But I think that there is a certain comfort that we probably could all recognise in blindly putting your faith in an authority figure in the face of a chaotic and challenging reality and therefore reverting to a kind of infantile state of dependence, as I mentioned earlier, and also foregoing the responsibility of having to make difficult decisions, of course, no matter how outrageous that authority's figure's arguments might be. For me, Tom, you have outlined a response to anxiety that, yes, we, we might see in, in a negative way. But, but of course, there will be more positive and creative responses to anxiety, as, as you have, have said. Perhaps compassion would be one of those responses. Compassion in public life. Indeed, compassion requires the judgment that there are serious bad things that happen to others through no fault of their own. It imagines that a person with basic human dignity, let's say, has been injured by life on, on a grand scale. The basic worth of a human being, of course, remains. But this does not mean that the human being has not been, been profoundly damaged, both outwardly and indeed inwardly. I'm sure that we would agree that we would want a society that promotes adequate compassion, that appropriate compassion is, is an important ingredient of, of good citizenship. And perhaps just such a compassionate response to the anxiety caused by the coronavirus is government aid, such as the coronavirus job retention scheme. It's certainly based on a compassionate civic judgment, I would say, and, and of course is a, is a great act of kindness. What other responses to anxiety would you point to, Tom? Well, I mean, just picking up on the point of, of compassion, Glenn, I mean, I think obviously activities born out of compassion can, I think, be very, very powerful antidotes to anxiety. You know, they, they bring people together. Um, so another way of working through anxiety, I think, is through the creative process. And uh, I'd like, if I may, at this point, to come back to Freud again, who I think exemplifies both of these attitudes, actually. So let's briefly consider, if we, if we can, the compositional process of one of his most famous works, Beyond the Pleasure Principle which was published a hundred years ago this year. So Freud was writing this text during the Spanish flu pandemic, which was to decimate the human race. In many ways, I think it can be viewed as a testament of how to master anxiety and indeed tragedy. For Freud's daughter, Sophie, who he refers to in the text, contracted the virus herself and died whilst he was writing it. Now, one of the theories that Freud sketches out in Beyond the Pleasure Principle is that of mastering a traumatic experience by turning it from something passive, which you suffer from, into something in which you can take an active role. So turning it from the passive to the active. And I think we could use this as one possible model for how to cope with anxiety. 
And apparently, although there is some scholarly debate about this, Shakespeare composed his great tragedy, King Lear, whilst in quarantine during the plague in London. Now, I'd like to think that this is actually true, because there couldn't be a more appropriate work of art, really, than Lear, dealing as it does with themes of madness and violence that take place under the breakdown of law and order to help us confront our own existential anxieties. Coming back to Aristotle, who you mentioned earlier, if tragedy helps us to deal with our own feelings of pity and fear by allowing us to experience them vicariously, might not the creative process itself, exemplified by the work of Shakespeare and Freud, be a way of transforming anxiety from something which we have to defend against into something more positive. Tom, if you were to sum up with a concluding point, what would you leave us with? Well, I, I think I'd like to sum up perhaps by suggesting that, um, that anxiety uh, can be seen as, as a signal um, and an indication for the possibility of change. And that perhaps by working and thinking creatively with our anxiety, rather than being a victim of it, we can perhaps use it in order to transform our lives for the better. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today. Thank you for sharing so much insight and for being as erudite as ever. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you're a financial advisor and would like to receive a CPD certificate for this podcast, please click the link in the descriptor to complete a short questionnaire. If you have any questions, please contact events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.